Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Today, which is week seven, We'll be covering the Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta, which is uh, which comes to us from the Majjhimanikaya or the middle length discourses of Lord Buddha from the Pali Canon. And it's Majjhimanikaya number 140. Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta. So it can loosely be translated as classification of the elements or classification, enumeration, elaborations on the elements, etc. As I was mentioning earlier today before our sit, um, I chose this sutta because it is linked up to the other uh, occurrences that happened. Uh, in, in the time of the Buddha, where five in particular, five bhikkhus from a previous lifetime who were colleagues to each other, companions on the path at the time of Lord Kassapa Buddha's dispensation, when they had made the resolution to go ahead and um, seclude themselves on top of a cliff and to meditate there because they realized that the teachings uh, were dying in a sense. Uh, people were not practicing them as well as they should. So they made this resolve and they went on top of this cliff and threw away the ladder to meditate and to never retreat until they've attained the Magga and Pala, which is path and fruit of the attainments. So one of them became an arahant within a few days, and then uh, the another one became a ananagami, which is a non-returner. So the other five remained there until they uh, expired, they died. And they didn't need anyone. They didn't. They refused the help of the other bhikkhus who had reached uh, sublime states and also psychic states where they were able to bring them food. They even brought them food, but they refused because they said that is not the reason why they had made that re resolve, that determination. So, so when they died, after a certain period of time uh, had passed we're talking about millions of years, um, they started to show up at the time of the Buddha, Lord, our Buddha, Gautama. And when a person has worked on their paramis, their perfections, they have enough merits and their trajectory has been set in a way because of their intentions behind their actions um, and the accumulation of their merits allowed them to be in the presence of another Buddha. And that's how we had uh, Dabba, for example, which I briefly talked about in the previous Sutta study class when I was also doing the Bahia Sutta. 
um, he became um, an Arahant at the age of seven. And then we saw how in the last uh, session, how Bahia Daruchiriya became an Arahant at the end of, and he was the quickest to attain, quickest uh, to attain uh, in the sense that just he took what the Buddha said and then he just got it on the spot. And then unfortunately he died. So those were two of, of those five that had appeared at the time of the Buddha. This is, uh, you can call them uh, bhikkhu number three <laughs> from that group of five. And obviously in this life, he was not a bhikkhu because we're gonna see him be, um, um, well, I'll just jump into it. Uh, his name uh, was Pukkusati. Uh, and he was born as uh, royalty, uh, and uh, he had become a, a, um, a king of a region that today can be um, seen to be in part in, in, in Pakistan, uh, pretty much in the center of Pakistan, modern day, um, and in, a, in a place called Takshila. Takshila was also the first um, the site of the first Buddhist university, and uh, many scholars uh, agree that it was the very first university in the world. Um, if we don't look at probably, you know, um, ancient Egypt, etc. So, um, so Taxila um, was the place where the kingdom of uh, King Kumpukusati was. So how uh, the commentaries uh, present this, um, the introduction, how they introduce rather Pukusati into the canon is that um, he had sent his emissaries, his ministers to uh, the kingdom of Rajgir, to the kingdom of Magadha, which was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful kingdom of India at that time. That is where you had King Bimbisara, and King Bimbisara was the same king who had seen um, Siddhartha Gautama when he was on his way to becoming an Arahant, uh, into becoming the Buddha. And he was so impressed by uh, the, uh, the Bodhisattva, at the time he was not the Buddha yet, uh, that he uh, had his uh, messengers follow him, his spies follow him, and they found out that he was living in a cave but he was so impressed with the way that he was walking, his presence and his demeanor that he himself went, the King Bimbisada went to him and, uh, and he promised him his, his uh, you know, half his kingdom. He said, you're so like, you're noble. You have it in you, it's in your blood. I would be honored if you can actually, uh, you know, take half of my, <laughs> kingdom and uh, and then the, the Siddhartha Gautama said no that's I've already left my kingdom what are you talking about I'm after a bigger prize I'm after Buddhahood I seek full awakening and King Bimbisara uh, asked uh, pleaded with Lord uh, with, with Siddhartha that once he did attain interesting how much of a faith he had in him because he felt he knew that this young man um, was going to attain, that once he did attain Buddhahood, that he would return back to Rajgir and teach him the Dhamma. 
And the Buddha, of course, after becoming the Buddha, he did fulfill that promise and he went and that's how we had King Bimbisara become a Sotapanna. He was a stream winner, stream enter. So the emissaries of King Pukusati had reached uh, the kingdom of uh, King Bimbisara and they were engaging. And, and uh, one of the questions that King Bimbisara asked the ministers and the uh, messengers of King Pukusati uh, was, how is your king? How does he govern his kingdom? How does he treat his people? Interesting how, you know, today's modern world, we don't have such rulers, <laughs> it seems, uh, where he's interested how this ruler treats his own public. And they say, so he, there's a certain classification like how does he treat the elderly? How does he treat uh, the poor? Um, there's a, per, a percentage of time, for example, where they, the king would off, open up his treasury to give to the impoverished. And for let's say five years or 20 years, whatever it is, interest-free uh, funding to help them improve their welfare. And then they would go ahead and pay back the king. For such a long time, they would work and establish themselves, come out of debt, etc. So anyhow, he was so impressed that he requested from the messengers that King Pukusati become a friend of his, because he was so impressed. And so the messengers go back and forth. And it's about 1,300 plus miles, by the way, from Rajgir to Taksila, a long distance. So, and obviously, so there's this development of a strong friendship, even though they never met one another, these two kings. So, and then King Pukusati sends gifts, very, very uh, um, precious types of fabric. I think they're called mulsen, um, and they would be made of very, very fine, fine cotton and silk. And he puts them in different um, boxes, sandalwood, gold, silver, etc. And he sends it to King uh, Bimbisara. Now, King Bimbisara receives that and he's so impressed he wants to send something, but to top it. That's how they, you know, would work. And he realizes after he does the whole analysis in his mind that, you know what? There's nothing that I could send him of this world that is of true value to my heart and that could really be considered a treasure. So he uh, advises his, um, um, his ministers to make for him a strip of gold, pure gold, um, uh, that was going to be used like almost like a manuscript, but it's made out of a thin sheet of gold, which was the length, I think they say in the commentaries, anywhere from half a cubit to three cubits. Cubit is about, you know, from your elbow to your middle finger tip of it, I think. And so three uh, times that and a half. So it's a long strip. And he goes and isolates himself. He washes himself, uh, his, his hair and all that. So he goes, he, just like in an Uposhata. So he takes his precepts and he prepares his mind. He secludes himself in his chamber by himself and um, starts to write down the qualities of Lord Buddha and the qualities of the Dhamma and the qualities of the Sangha. So, itipiso bhagava arahan samma sambuddho. 
And then he goes, Svakato Bhagavata Dhamma Sangita. And then he goes, Supatipanno Bhagavato Sar. So the qualities, the three, when we pay reverence, venerate the triple gem. And then he breaks down the Eightfold Path and he explains it to him as a layperson. And he does it, they say, in the most exquisite, eloquent way of writing. And then he wraps it up and he in, in the gold foil and, and he puts it in a box made of gold. And he takes that box, puts it in a box that's made of silver. And then he puts it in another box that's made of sandalwood, which is very fragrant and ruby covered. And all, you know, it, it, the commentaries go into a long, lengthy explanation. So box within the box, within the box, etc. And then with this very special pro, uh, procession, uh, he has it uh, be carried on an elephant. And he himself walks with them and out of his board, his gates and into out of his cities. And he advises the ministers of King Pukusati who are taking this. Uh, one of them, he goes and whispers to his ear and says, make sure when you, you, only you speak to the king and say, before he opens this gift, that he goes and isolates himself in the uppermost chamber away from his queens and his attendants. And he opens it up on his own in private. And he reads, I mean, he doesn't say what it is. So, and so it happens. And with huge, huge uh, celebration, King Pukusati on, on his end in Taksila uh, receives this procession and he he hears the, his own minister say to him the direction that he had received from Bimbisara. And he takes the, the gift and he goes all the way up to his chamber and he opens it up. And that becomes a life transforming uh, transformation for him. And uh, he reads it and he immediately, all the merits from his past lives come as it were, greeting him as he's reading because he goes, this is it, this is it. And suddenly without knowing, they say, he starts folding his legs together, sits upright and goes into the first jhana. Now, of course there were directions that King Bimbisara had mentioned um, some of the instructions uh, from whatever he had learned from Lord Buddha as an Upasaka. So he stays like that, going in and out of jhanas, reading and rereading and rereading uh, for about two weeks. And he just had a young boy who came and brought him food during those two weeks. Meanwhile, the people get uh, anxious outside because they're waiting for their king because they saw this procession and he went up to his you know, palace and he didn't come out and they loved him, his people. So they're starting to worry and they think there's something mischievous going on and they want their ruler back. And <laughs> King Pukusati takes a hold of his, I guess, royal ponytail, if you want to call it that, cuts and it has a huge golden uh, ring attached uh, like a hair clip, I guess, with ruby encrustations on it, encrust, encrusted. And he cuts that and he throws it out into the public from his window and says, there's your ruler. 
and uh, and then he shaves his head he cuts it as best as he can and <laughs> he puts on some robes and then he walks out he cuts his beard he shaves it and then he's leaving and his own attendants don't even recognize him as he's coming down the stairs but then they soon go into the room and see that where's our king and he's gone and they're like, oh that was him so they follow him and everybody's sobbing and, and crying and and he says no i've i've made my decision so uh, long story short i'm trying to actually shorten it further and further than what is so much it's, it's so much delicious material here uh, to inspire us in our practice. And because um, I find it extremely important to get the backstory of suttas, because there's so much wealth of knowledge and uh, information there. So he leaves his kingdom and he draws a line with, with a piece of stick. And he says, uh, you know, in a sense, this is your kingdom. This is mine as he's walking away to his public and everybody's in mourning and all that because as I said they loved him so he joins a caravan that's going south from Taxila Pakistan is north of India northeast so he's coming down um, the thing that he doesn't uh, ask or he didn't have the chance because he was so like driven that at that time, Lord Buddha was in Savati. Because King Bimbisara is in Rajgir, he immediately concludes that, oh, Lord Buddha is in Rajgir too. Well, there's a discrepancy about 340 miles plus between the two cities. So the caravan passes through Savati. So he stays in Savati for a little while, I mean, for a few hours. And, and then he, the caravan continues down south towards Rajgir. Again, 340 plus miles. Once he gets there, he is looking around for Lord Buddha and they say, well, he's, he's up north. Where are you coming from? Oh, I came from Savati. Oh, that's where he was. So he goes, fine, let me rest uh, before I go back. So this is the time that uh, um, where, where the sutta is taking place at this point. Now, what the sutta doesn't say, but the commentaries do, uh, um, is that um, every morning at dawn, Lord Buddha would scan the universe with his Buddha eye to see who would be most ready. Who's right there on the cusp of awakening? How can he help? And he saw clearly that Pukkusati was right there, but he had overshot his journey in a sense. So he had gone to Rajgir. And the Buddha puts his things in order and he starts walking the 344 miles down to Rajgir. Now, some people say, well, why didn't he fly there or just like appear and disappear, right? Uh, uh, which he has normally done, like we've seen in different suttas uh, and throughout the Nikayas, we see this. Well, as a teacher, he always was concerned, especially as Lord Buddha, Sama Sambuddha, he is always considering his actions and his behavior, always, for, for, you know, for posterity. As in, if Pukkusati has come 
1,300 plus miles down from his kingdom by walking. He didn't even ride a horse or an ox. He came all the way walking and he passed Vatsavati and he's now walked all the way down to Rajgir. I, as his teacher, must do the same. And I, in this case, uh, the commentary is interesting because it says the Buddha went incognito. He didn't go with his whole Buddha splendor, meaning displaying his brilliance and radiance, because that is unavoidable. People would see him normally with his radiance, and uh, especially after he would give a uh, Dhamma talk, they say the six rays would come out of him. Uh, you can call it the aura, and everybody, it was unmistakable. People from far and wide would see it, and they would rush to see what's happening, Where, what's, where's the source. But he didn't choose to do that this time. And perhaps we can discover more. So uh, I know it's a long sutta, so I try to uh, also fill in as much as I can. Um, so, but I want to do it in one sitting today the whole sutta, and I'll go as fast as I um, can, in a fair manner, of course, and also leave, hopefully, room for you guys to have ask, uh, to ask me questions. All right, so here we go. Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 140. And this is a translation I worked on this week to finish, uh, to make it more satisfactory, in fact, and more um, current. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was walking through the Magadan country in Rajagha. When he reached Bhagava, the potter's workshop, by the way, that is where, uh, well, I, I won't give away the, that part. Uh, Bhagava, the potter's workshop. After exchanging cordial greetings with him, the Blessed One asked, if it is inconvenient, if it is not inconvenient to you, householder, I wish to spend one night resting in your workshop. Bhante, uh, this is uh, Bhagava responding. Bhagava, there is a recluse who has just arrived earlier and is now staying at my workshop. If he does not mind, then you may stay here also and uh, for as long as you like, answered Bhagava the potter. Meanwhile, a certain recluse by the name of Pukkusati, who had recently left the lay life, and become homeless out of faith in the Blessed One, had just arrived and was resting at the potter's workshop. Then the Blessed One, in approaching the Venerable Pukkusati, said to him, if it is not inconvenient to the bhikkhu present, I will spend one night here at the workshop. Friend, you may stay here for as long as you wish in this potter's workshop, for it is not inconvenient, replied Pukusati, the recluse. Friend is a term that um, you say to equals. And the term in Pali is avuso. And uh, at the time of the Buddha, people, uh, bhikkhus used to use that term to each other. One of the 
things that the Buddha instituted at the time of his death, in fact, he told Ananda to uh, have this practice uh, be stopped in a sense between a younger bhikkhu and an elder bhikkhu. Uh, an elder bhikkhu can turn to the younger novice or a younger bhikkhu and say abuso, which is friend, if they choose to, or they can choose their name, say their name. But um, that's where we have the bhante part come in. Bhante, they would say that. Uh, so here he was saying abuso, so he was seeing him as an equal in a sense, as a similar reckless, because the Buddha was incognito, let's not forget that. Um, and it's interesting how we see um, uh, Venerable Pukusati here, even though it's not his, 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 his dwelling place, still it's, he's the only one there. Uh, and how he was generous with his space. Today in this world, um, we have a situation where, unfortunately, this generosity does, uh, it, it seems to be running um, low on gas. In a sense, people are becoming more and more possessive of their spaces, which by the way, in the, in the case of the Sangha, it is not even ours. It comes from you, the Upasakas and Upasikas who support the Sangha. So um, even in the commentaries, men, you know, they mentioned this, how foolish monks, um, vain monks, and they even have a term for them. They call them mogha purisa. Um, purisa is a human. Mogha means like foolish, basically. Uh, so miserly that they want to hold on to their space. No, you go over there and sit under the tree far away from because this is my space. Um, so this accommodation that is being generously provided on part of Fukusati, because he's now the lord of that workshop, which, by the way, has all kinds of stuff going around, like you have rats, you have chickens, you have cats, you have animal excrement here and there, you have, you know, grass, it's dusty, um, pottery here and there. So the man, you know, I wanted to mention that because I've also been on the receiving end of that during the past year or so um, as a homeless bhikkhu. Um, so it makes one think of the relevancy of, of what the commentaries here have been saying about being generous with one's space as bhikkhus, because it doesn't belong to us. And um, we, let's continue. Then the, blue, uh, then the Blessed One entered the potter's workshop. And after making a spread of dried grass in a suitable area that was clean, he collected his legs by placing them into a sitting position and established mindfulness in front of him. In this manner, the Blessed One sat in meditation far into the night in his seated posture. Similarly, the Venerable Pukusati also spent most of the night in the seated posture. Now, uh, King Pukusati had not just stayed at uh, the first jhana level. He had developed his practice and got it all the way to uh, the fourth jhana. And um, 
what we'll see is how he is not sleeping. He had just come from a long journey, hundreds of miles, but he is not sleeping. He has every excuse to sleep. His body is tired. But one of the wonderful things about the fourth jhana is that it allows you, the equanimity gets so deep that you can disassociate, and that's actually one of the requirements, from the body in the sense that it doesn't become loud anymore. Only when something touches the body that you become cognizant of the body. Otherwise, you're in a very deep, still state of calm and, and relaxation mentally. Uh, the term is piti manasakayan pasambati. The joy arises when the body is relaxed. So the fourth jhana allows the person to meditated to reach that state. Um, so, and this is one of the reasons why um, it's interesting because we, if he, uh, we also can conclude that if King Pukusati had not gone into the jhana state, his body was in so much pain from walking over 300 miles, that uh, he would not have been taught anything. And seeing what's about to happen the next day, we could have understood why the Buddha would like to come in and, and quickly teach Pukusati, the Dhamma, but he didn't. Just like in the case of Bahia, which we saw three times he asked until the Buddha actually taught him because he had been running from all the way from an area near Mumbai, modern day Mumbai, which is a long way as well to Savati. So here too, we see Lord Buddha not quickly you know, jumping into to teach Pukusati. So he's allowing Venerable Pukusati to, to have his mind rest, come to a point of rest and staying in the Jhanic state for some time was uh, helpful. Uh, some people say that, well, uh, Rajgir was a very noisy city. So to teach the Dhamma in a noisy environment was not an opportune uh, thing to do for Lord Buddha. That's why he delayed it until midnight. Um, so um, I have, uh, my feelings are different than that. Um, I think it's the first uh, because he was extremely tired, Pukusati. Um, so, meanwhile, Lord Buddha is also in the, you know, uh, Pala Samapati is in the fruition stage of, uh, you know, jhana, and he's, he's just, in, you know, bliss of Nibbana he's experiencing. And he's, and he observes Pukusati, how he's so collected, he's not moving. Um, they say the Buddha arrived there at sunset. And this was around midnight. So we're talking about six hours or so. Not moving. Some of you students that I tell, don't move when you're sitting. Uh, let's continue. And then it occurred to the Blessed One. This clansman dedication to his practice is inspiring and pleasing to behold. I will now question him. And the Blessed One asked the Venerable Pukusati the following, Bhikkhu, 
By having faith in whom have you gone forth and thus went into homelessness? Who is your teacher? Whose teaching do you carry in your heart? Now the Buddha knew that Pukusati became a monk out of reverence for him. But he decided to ask him because if he uh, didn't do so, then there would not be a, a point of entry into a conversation. So he's, he's making, you know, the opening, the prelude to a conversation to start it and to pave the way for the Dhamma to, to take place. And here's where a Venerable Pukusati responds. He says, friend, there is the recluse Gautama, the son of the Sakyans, who has gone forth and become homeless. Now, a great fame has been spread about that blessed Gautama, that the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly self-awakened, the possessor of supreme knowledge and conduct, the well-gone, the knower of worlds, the peerless charioteer and trainer of beings, the teacher of gods and humans, the enlightened one and the exalted. I went forth into homelessness by having faith in him. That Blessed One is my teacher. It is his Dhamma that I carry in my heart. I mean, we can almost see the majestic smile on Lord Buddha's face in hearing this, and seeing the faith generated in the heart of Venerable Pukusati. And he continues asking, and where, Bhikkhu, would you say the perfectly self-awakened one, this exalted one is living now? Friend, there is a city located within the Northeastern Territories in a township named Savati. And that is where the perfectly self-awakened, the exalted one is living now. And have you, Bhikkhu, seen the blessed one yourself? Would you recognize him if you were to see him? Asked the Lord. Somebody should make a movie of this. No, friend, answered Pukusati as he continued. I have not personally seen the Blessed One, and therefore I will not be able to recognize him if I were to see him. Then it occurred to the Blessed One. This clansman has gone forth and become homeless by having faith in me. I will now teach him the Dhamma. And the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Kukusati. The question itself as to uh, Lord Buddha's question, as to who does he have faith in, who, who placed his faith in. When we hear questions like that, even in our lives, um, it kind of reshuffles the, you know, it, it, it triggers, it instigates uh, within us. Uh, it moves away the gray ash so that we can see the embers of the things that brought us to the path. So it, gen it, it, it brings out sadha, the faith and confidence in us, which is essential to hear the Dhamma, to practice the Dhamma, to realize the Dhamma. So here with Lord Buddha's question, it's so ingenious, it's so perfect because now Venerable Pukusati's body is relaxed, yes, but also in his heart, in his mind, faith was brought into focus. And he is now ready to receive the Dhamma, which is, by the way, Lord Buddha. 
Because Buddha said, Lord Buddha said so many times, he who sees the Dhamma sees me. He who sees me, the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. They're the, the same thing. Then Buddha continues, Bhikkhu, I will teach you the Dhamma. Listen and pay close attention to what I shall say. And the Venerable Pukkusati replied, Yes, friend. The Blessed One continued, Bhikkhu, a person is comprised of six elements, six bases of contact, 18 mental explorations, and four resolutions. When confronted by these, one should not get flooded by these imaginings. When no longer preoccupied by these notions thus, one is declared as the peaceful sage. In this manner, one diligently protects truth by no longer neglecting wisdom, while developing a deeper understanding of giving up and training oneself in becoming more peaceful. This is the short exposition on the classification of the six elements. And what was meant, Bhikkhu, by the statement, a person is comprised of six elements? This is in reference to the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element, the space element, and the consciousness or sense awareness element. Therefore, Bhikkhu, in hearing that a person is comprised of six elements, you should understand the meaning of that statement in this manner. So here we see how in the uh, Dhatu Vibhanga uh, Sutta, uh, what's being advocated is that the grasping, the holding on to these six elements uh, before the person's death will lead to a rebirth, to a descent into a womb, as they say, uh, because um, the consciousness, the very last one, is the thing that is being adhered to. And because of consciousness, as we see in the Paticca Samuppada, law of the 12 links of causal relations, um, consciousness will be leading one into Nama Rupa, which is name and form. So that's why what's being advocated here is to stop the descent into a womb by cutting it right there at the consciousness uh, level, um, which we'll go deeper into in a bit. Uh, so let's continue. And what was meant, Bhikkhu, by the statement, a person is comprised of six bases of contact, this is in reference to the base of eye contact, the base of ear contact, the base of nose contact, the base of tongue contact, the base of body contact, and the base of mind contact. Therefore, Bhikkhu, in hearing that a person is comprised of six bases of contact, you should understand the meaning of that statement in this manner. Many people say, I was taught for years uh, that the, uh, you know, the Buddha's Dhamma is the teachings are just a, a collection of numbers, classifications. Yes, they do serve a major purpose, but that is not just it. When we leave the scholarly hat aside and we go into the practice of the Dhamma, we start to see how these classifications take a person straight out of samsara in the form of cutting one loose 
from the attachments that we hold, specifically in this case, the mind objects that we hold so dearly, the perceptions, the concepts, specifically the concepts, the principles that we learn in the Dhamma, because it's so easy for us to become so attached to them. However, when we look at them as mere classifications in a way that uh, a dissection chart would work in a lab, in biology lab, if we look at them in that fashion, just like in the case of the eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, etc., what we're doing is we are releasing this strong, strong bond. We are dismantling this huge rope, you know, those ropes that take, pull in a huge, massively big uh, oil tankers closer and closer to the, to the dock, to the port. If you look closer to those ropes, they're made of smaller ropes. And you took, take a look at those ropes and then you see that they're made of even smaller and smaller until you actually get to the uh, fibers that make up these ropes. So uh, let's continue. And what was meant Bhikkhu by the statement, a person is comprised of 18 mental explorations. On seeing a form with the eye, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being seen, or it starts looking for bothersome properties with the, within the object being seen, or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being seen. On hearing a sound with the ear, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being heard or it starts looking for bothersome quality, uh, properties within the object being heard, or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being heard. As you can tell, I'm reading each of these 18 properties uh, because I find it, the reason why I started translating and recording the suttas in full is this, because the Buddha, I don't think or believe in my bones that he uh, use the ellipses in any shape, way, or form. He explained it as a, a good teacher should. So that's why I'm, I'm reading everything. And uh, because it helps the mind to settle, to settle. Whatever was missed in the earlier sentence can be captured in another sentence if it is continuously being repeated. Uh, so please bear that in mind. On smelling an odor with the nose, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being smelled, or it starts looking for bothersome properties within the object being smelled, or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being smelled. On tasting a flavor with the tongue, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being tasted or it starts looking for bothersome properties within the object being tasted, or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being tasted. On touching a tactile object with the body, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being touched, or it starts looking for bothersome properties within the object being touched, or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being touched. On knowing a mental object with the mind, the mind starts looking for enjoyable properties within the object being known, or it starts looking for bothersome properties within the object being known, 
or it starts looking for equanimous properties within the object being known. Therefore, Bhikkhu, in hearing that a person is comprised of 18 mental explorations, you should understand the meaning of that statement in this manner. And what was meant, Bhikkhu, by the statement, a person is comprised of four resolutions? This is in reference to the resolution of wisdom, the resolution of truth, the resolution of giving up, and the resolution of peace. Therefore, Bhikkhu, in hearing that a person is comprised of four resolutions, you should understand the meaning of that statement in this manner. It's, in, it's, it's quite interesting because as I'm rereading this, something that I've read a few times, suddenly I got the image of both Kings Bimbisara and King Pukusati, especially King Pukusati, who was unraveling his gift from King Bimbisara, one box after the other. The outermost box, they say it was made out of lacquer. And then you look inside that and there's a wooden specially, specially made with lapis lazuli and, you know, amethyst and things probably. And then there's another one with rubies and silver. You're unraveling, 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 removing one box out of another box. Similarly, when we are reading this, listening to this very beautiful, valuable sutta, the Dhatu Vibhanga, we are being, um, you know, one after the other. These principles are being pulled out of one another box that encapsulated them. And then we go deeper in another sentence, in another teaching in it, that comes a little bit later and a little bit later. And we see how the Buddha is unraveling the gift of Dhamma to King or Venerable Pukusati here. So that's an image that I wish to share with you. And what was meant, Bhikkhu, by the statement? One diligently protects truth by no longer neglecting wisdom while developing a deeper understanding of giving up and training oneself in becoming more peaceful. And how, Bhikkhu, does one diligently protect truth by no longer neglecting wisdom? Here, one sees the six elements as they are. That is, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element, the space element, and the consciousness or sense awareness element. And here he breaks it down, each of these. And what bhikkhu is meant here by the earth element? Here, the earth element may be seen internally or externally. And what is meant by earth element that is seen internally? Here, bhikkhu, whatever is experienced internally within oneself or externally as a solid or has the quality of hardness and is attached to oneself is seen as the earth element, such as head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, veins, bones, bone marrow, kidney, heart, liver, lungs, spleen, intestines, large intestines, solid contents of the belly, 
feces, and any other substance that are solid or hard taking place internally, seen as personal and looked upon as one's own. Whether looking at these internally or externally, these are all seen as simply the earth element. Looking upon them as these are not mine, I am not found in them. There is no trace of a self to be found in them. Thus, as one looks upon these again and again as they really are, with correct understanding and wisdom, the mind gets disenchanted with the earth element and becomes dispassionate towards it. Your jawbone, how beautiful is it? The cavities in your teeth, the cavities that hold your eyeballs, your femur, the biggest, longest bones in your body, my femur. See what's happening already? Just a tiny little switch or change in, in, in formulating it. Instead of looking at it, this is me. This is where I am found in my bone marrow or something. Instead, you're dissecting it. So what the Dhatubhivanga Sutta is allowing us to do is, is trying to reveal this magician's veil to kind of expose the trick that the mind plays here is to allow us to have the elements fade away in their significance, in their crystallized, accepted, solid form in our mind, solid in the sense that this is me, this is mine. So the Datu Ibanga is trying to uh, say the jig is up. I am revealing this whole magic trick. And the term is virajeti, fading away from the mind. So it's trying to erase the bond, the connection, the shackle rather, uh, that the elements have on the mind itself. And uh, Venerable Sariputta was known to explain this in the Samaditi Sutta and elsewhere throughout the Nikayas, where he would describe the elements always in the form of you know, head hair, body hair, uh, nails, teeth, and touch, a skin, basically. Um, because these things can uh, become oftentimes the, um, the area, the, the thing that secludes us and keeps us in comfort with this sense of conceit, the conceit I am. What I'm referring to is the constant comparison that we do. Me versus you. I am sitting here, you're sitting there. My level of attainment versus your level of attainment. My understanding, your understanding. All these things. And, but when you narrow it down, we see that each packet of a living experience that we undergo, call them individual consciousnesses, is replete, is full of, is drenched in this conceit, I am. 
And Venerable Sariputta, as well as the Lord Buddha here, always have been advocating to spend some time dissecting this thing that we take it for, take for granted. I am this. No, no, I'm not this. There's hairs, there's body hairs, there's bones, there's saliva, there's feces, you know. Some arans, like Ajahn Mahabua would say, you know, I, I'm just a bag of feces. Powerful image, right? Or a bag of bones. That never fails. To kind of shake us a little bit. So um, as we're, you know, this is one of those suttas that need, needs to be read, went over again and again and again. And that's one of the reasons why I, uh, I'm glad that I'm doing these um, uh, series on suttas so that the listener could go back and back, whatever, because I would miss it all the time. So I have to go over and read it again. It's like every time I return back, I pick up something that I missed. It's wonderful. It's a gift that keeps on giving. So um, fading away from the mind, these elements, um, allows the mind to become liberated from the elements. Therefore, it doesn't descend into another womb, which is the bottom line. This is the second. Remember, the Buddha taught two things, I say. The first one is there is dukkha. The second one is freedom from dukkha. What is freedom from dukkha? Not descending into another womb not taking another birth. And the Arahants sometimes would joke around amongst themselves and say, the thing to be feared is not death. The thing to be feared is another birth. Stay away from that. And that is what this classification of the elements is trying to do to help us. To avoid the birth into another womb. Um, let's continue. Further, Bhikkhu, whatever is experienced internally within oneself or externally as watery or having the quality of liquid and is attached to oneself is seen as the water element, such as bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, oil of the body, tears, oil of the eyes, spit, snot, oil of the joints, urine, and any other substance that is liquid, liquidy, taking place internally, seen as personal and looked upon as one's own. Whether looking at these internally or externally, these are all seen as simply the water element, which one looks upon now as these are not me. I am not found in them. There is no trace of a self to be found in them. Thus, as one looks upon these again and again as they really are, with correct understanding and wisdom, the mind gets disenchanted with the water element and becomes dispassionate towards it. Further, Bhikkhu, whatever is experienced internally within oneself or externally as fiery or having the quality of heat, and is attached to oneself is seen as the fire element, such as when things are consumed, enjoyed, drunk, eaten, and tasted, all of which get digested through the process of heat or any other substance that is burning, taking place internally, seen as personal, including your body temperature, by the way, 
seen as personal and looked upon as one's own. Whether looking at these internally or externally, these are seen as simply the fire element, which one looks upon as these are not me. I am not found in them. There is no trace of a self to be found in them. Thus, as one looks upon these again and again as they really are, with correct understanding and wisdom, the mind gets disenchanted with the fire element and becomes dispassionate towards it. Further, Bhikkhu, whatever is experienced internally within oneself or externally as wind, or sometimes they translate as air, um, or has the quality of airiness or movement and is attached to oneself is seen as the wind element, such as the internal winds that go up and down the body, winds or air in the belly, in the lower portion of the abdomen, winds going up and down the limbs, the in-breaths and out-breaths and any other airy movement that is taking place internally seen as personal and looked upon as one's own. Whether looking at these internally or externally, these are all seen as simply the wind element, which one looks upon now as these are not me. I am not found in them. There is no trace of a self to be found in them. Thus, as one looks upon these again and again as they really are with correct understanding and wisdom, the mind gets disenchanted with the wind element and becomes dispassionate towards it. By the way, let's not neglect the two key factors there, correct understanding and wisdom. That's what distinguishes Lord Buddha's path from anything else out there. Further, Bhikkhu, whatever is experienced internally within oneself or externally as space or having the quality of space or is hollow, and is attached to oneself is seen as the space element, such as the internal cavities in the form of space in the ear lobes, nostrils, the mouth, the esophagus, larynx, that lead down from the mouth, where anything experienced or enjoyed, drunk, eaten, and tasted is stored, and the spaces through which these move into and out of, or are turned inside out and any other occurrences involving space that is taking place internally or seen as personal and looked upon as one's own. Whether looking at these internally or externally, these are all seen as simply the space element, which one looks upon as, these are not me. I am not found in them. There is no trace of a self to be found in them. Thus, as one looks upon these again and again, as they really are, with correct understanding and wisdom, the mind gets disenchanted with the space element and becomes dispassionate towards it. Then what remains is consciousness or sense awareness that is purified and clean, by which something is known as pleasurable, painful, or neither painful nor pleasurable. So here the Buddha distinguishes the rest of the elements from consciousness itself. One can still have an active role vis-a-vis -vis the other elements, but when it comes to the consciousness, the sense awareness of things, feeling warmth, feeling heat, feeling cool, touching something that's, that's frozen, 
smelling something that is, you know, appalling. The sense awareness itself is just almost, uh, you can say inert, like inert gases or noble gases in the periodic table that don't react. But the reaction part, if we're using terms from chemistry, the reaction part takes place within the other elements, it seems, right? My relationship to my spleen, for example, my relationship to my indigestion or constipation, which is a lot of patavi or earth element, being obsessed with that. These are just examples. So what remains, Buddha says, is consciousness that is purified and clean. So long as the person is able to identify that these are not me, there is not an iota of a self to be found in these things. So when the person has done their due diligence, by the time that we get to the sixth consciousness, which is in this case, the sense awareness element, we've already done our work. There's no birth into any womb, into any form of existence. That's why we can see the emphasis of Venerable Sariputta, or Lord Buddha, in dissecting. In fact, one of the things that we are taught at our ordination our higher ordination, upasampada, is bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. What happens is the preceptor gives us kesa, lomana, kadanta, and tacho, which are basically head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and, uh, and, and skin, touch. Why? Because it's so quick. Last time uh, we spoke how Venerable Dabba, the seven-year-old Arahant, he attained Arahantship simply by hearing the, those terms. By the time that it got to Tacho, which is skin, he had become an Arahant. So that's how powerful these classifications are. So they're not just mere classifications, a breakdown of something. They're very involving. They're revealing. Let's continue. And Bhikkhu, on account of a pleasurable contact, there arises a pleasurable feeling, and one knows, I feel pleasure. With the cessation of that pleasurable contact, the respective pleasurable feeling also ceases, and one knows that it has subsided. Bhikkhu, on account of a painful contact, there arises a painful feeling, and one knows, I feel pain. With the cessation of that painful contact, the respective painful feeling also ceases, and one knows that it has subsided. We're still talking about the consciousness element here. Because when contact happens, the feeling part of it comes in the form of three, right? whether it is pleasurable, whether it is painful, whether it is neutral. It is the contact or the, the sense awareness that is telling us this. And it, the, the point, the danger zone here is when consciousness is so full, is drenched in the identification of, ah, oh, this is such a pleasurable feeling. Oh, this is such a disgusting feeling. That no longer means that consciousness is now inert because it has now taken on the colors 
identified itself with this thing, which now has turned into an actual feeling for which the mind is now developed craving towards. That's where tanha comes in and we are hooked. It's like the bait that we have taken, like a fish on a hook. We bought, we, we've bitten into the, um, the hook and taken the bait. Bhikkhu, on account of neither painful nor pleasurable contact, there arises a neither painful nor a pleasurable feeling. And one knows, I feel neither pain nor pleasure because the person is identifying. These are not me. Yes, 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 I'm feeling the heat. I am feeling the, the smell that is displeasing, shall we say. I'm feeling it, but I'm not taking it to heart. I, I, I understand. I'm not dead, you know. I'm seeing, I'm sensing these things. But with the cessation of that neither painful nor pleasurable contact, the respective neither painful nor pleasurable feeling also ceases right there on the spot. This is exactly what the Buddha was saying to Bahia in the previous sutta that we did. Bahia, when seeing something, just see. When hearing something, just hear. When smelling, when touching, just see it for what it is and let it move on. <laughs> And one knows that it has subsided. Bhikkhu, it is just like when two pieces of dry wood are rubbed repeatedly against each other, that there arises heat and fire. And when the pieces of wood are removed from one another, the respective heat and fire ceases and subsides. In the same manner, on account of a pleasurable contact, there arises a pleasurable feeling, and one knows, I feel pleasure. With the cessation of that pleasurable contact, the respective pleasurable feeling also ceases. So basically, the Buddha is repeating here uh, what we just covered, because again, this is so important. And one knows that it has subsided. On account of a painful contact, there arises a painful feeling, and one knows, I feel pain. With the cessation of that painful contact, the respective painful feeling also ceases, and one knows that it has subsided. On account of a neither painful nor pleasurable contact, there arises neither a painful nor a pleasurable feeling, and one knows, I feel neither pain nor pleasure. With the cessation of that neither painful nor pleasurable contact, the respective, neither painful nor pleasurable feeling also ceases, and one knows that it has subsided. Then what is left is equanimity, that is purified and clean, superbly malleable and wieldy, always radiant. And if you've ever listened to uh, sutta from the Nikayas, you would know that Lord Buddha loves analogies, metaphors, similes, we call it. Here's another one coming up. Suppose, Bhikkhu, a skilled goldsmith or his apprentice, who by building a furnace would fire it up and taking a pair of pincers would place the gold in the crucible within the furnace. And from time to time, he would continue by adding more heat to it sprinkling water on it from time to time. 
while being attentive to it throughout. This is interesting because when I was a, uh, a child, I was, you know, child labor, I guess, uh, and growing up in Lebanon, uh, when I was about 12, 11, 12, I had gone to learn the um, business or art of uh, goldsmithing. So I was uh, taken on as an apprentice and I was taught how to make jewelry. So uh, one of the toughest parts of the, of the craft is to um, gather the, the shavings or the dust uh, of the gold and pouring, pouring it, putting it in uh, with some chemi chemicals inside of a, of a crucible and putting it in this furnace, which we would heat it up. And uh, eventually they trusted me enough that I was doing uh, it right, um, that I was doing it uh, a few times actually. And uh, one thing that I remember, um, the person who was teaching me came in and would check was whether I had sufficient amount of heat added ever so often. And there was a, a thing that we used to call it the finger. And, and um, it's made out of basically a clay. So it looks like a finger. So you would hold it with the pincers or the, or the tongs and you would dab it inside the liquidy, now liquid because of the heat, the gold. And we would gently stir it once or twice and remove that. As we removed it, all the dross, all the impurities would stick to that. And we would put that aside. And now what you had in the crucible was the pure gold. So, but the heat had to be constant and we would always have to come back. We can't, we couldn't expose it to air or coolness. Otherwise it would really, you know, tear up the crucible sometimes or just have us to do it all, all over, over again. So that image is, you know, um, so true. Um, and uh, the Buddha continues, and from time to time, he would continue by adding more heat to it. It's 2,600 year old, you know, simile, it's so true. Um, sprinkling water on it from time to time while being attentive to it throughout. The gold, meanwhile, becomes purified, cleaned and refined of all its impurities, becoming radiant superbly malleable and wieldy and suitable to be made into any ornaments the goldsmith or his apprentice would desire, such as anklets, rings, earrings, or a gold chain. In the same manner, what is left is equanimity that is purified and clean, superbly malleable and wieldy, always radiant. Then one knows and understands the following. If I were to direct this equanimity that is purified and bright to the dimension of infinite space and thus develop the mind in such a suitable way that it continuously promotes equanimity to be settled in, in it, then I would remain in that state for a very long time. Here, Lord Buddha is talking about the Arupa jhanas, specifically the fifth jhana, the realm of or uh, dimension of infinite space. And if you remember, Hukusati was in, sitting in the fourth jhana, which would eventually get him into the fifth jhana, but he hadn't gotten to the fifth jhana. Perhaps he did, and Lord Buddha knew with his mind. 
So this is also a precautionary measure that the Buddha is kind of warning, forewarning Ukusati about. Because even though you might go into this even more blissful state of infinite space, you might stay there. You will stay there for a very, very long time, especially after death. But you're going to fall back down into a womb when that credit runs out. And the Buddha lists the other uh, arupajanas here. And if I were to direct this equanimity, that means the bhikkhu who is practicing and having reached that state of equanimity, uh, direct this equanimity that is purified and bright to the dimension of infinite consciousness and thus develop the mind in such a suitable way that it continuously promotes equanimity to be settled in it, then I would remain in that state for a very long time. This is the sixth Arupajana, the sixth jhana, actually. And if I were to direct this equanimity that is purified and bright to the dimension of nothingness, and thus develop the mind in such a suitable way that it continuously promotes equanimity to be settled in it, then I would remain in that state for a very long time. And if I were to direct this equanimity that is purified and bright to the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, and thus develop the mind in such a suitable way that it continuously promotes equanimity to be settled in it, then I would remain in that state for a very long time. However, the, with the development of wisdom, one understands the following. So basically the Buddha says, don't do these things. When you have the tendency to be pulled into these arupajanas, because one after the other, they're even more sublime than the one before. That is not the objective. Because, here we go, all these lofty states of mind are in fact conditional. They rely on conditioning. So, this person works to stay away from generating any new conditions, not producing any desires for becoming or non-becoming. And one lives by not clinging to anything in the world. By not grasping onto anything in the world, he no longer gets worried nor agitated. And by not getting agitated anymore, one personally comes to taste the truth of Nibbana. Here, one knows birth is destroyed. The holy life has now been fully lived. What should be done is now done. There is nothing more to do, nor a cause for more future becoming. And the commentaries say how here is where Pukkusati attained the third level, meaning he became an anagami with fruit, fruition sage. And um, at this part of the explanation, when the Buddha talked about the wisdom part, which is the truth of Nibbana. Here, while feeling pleasant feelings, one knows this is impermanent and is no more pulled into it, nor does one hold on to it and thus no longer delights in it. While feeling painful feelings, one knows this is impermanent and is no more pulled into it, nor does one hold on to it, and thus no longer delights in it. While feeling neither painful nor pleasant feelings, one knows this is impermanent, and is no more pulled into it, nor does one hold on to it, and thus 
no longer delights in it. Whether feeling pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings, one experiences them without becoming wrapped up in them, nor overtaken by them. They're no longer identifying them as these are me. When experiencing a pleasurable feeling, one does, not, does so while being released from that pleasant feeling. Right there on the spot. You identify that it's a pleasurable feeling. Okay, fine, let's move on. Oh, it's a disgusting smell. Okay, fine, let's move on. This is leaving consciousness pure and clean. Just like that gold we talked about. When experiencing a painful feeling, one does so while being released from that painful feeling. When experiencing a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, one does so while being released from that feeling. And when the time comes and the body breaks down, one knows I am experiencing the body breaking down. And when one feels the end of life approaching, one knows I am experiencing the end of my life. And with the body breaking down and the ending of life fast approaching, one knows whatever I am experiencing now at the breakup of this body. And despite all that is taking place with the ending of life itself, all that is felt and experienced. The mind nevertheless remains aloof, not being wrapped up nor delighting in, for all these are now cooled and subdued right here. One of the crucial things that a person on their deathbed needs to do definitely is not to become identified with these elements. Because as the body is breaking down, we're going through the elements stage by stage, sometimes very quickly, sometimes very slowly. But one might feel the intensity of the earth element like crushing solid over them or feeling the body disintegrating like as if in the water drowning etc and it if the mind is not ready the person might become overwhelmed and become identified at that crucial moment so um if and when you are in such a situation such a situation or in the presence of someone undergoing these things, it's good to help them navigate through it without getting wet by these elements, identified by these elements and keeping the consciousness clean. Otherwise, they will be headed towards another birth. Bhikkhu, think of an oil lamp that burns on the condition that there is sufficient oil and a wick to keep it burning. And when these are no more due to the lack of fuel to support it, the light from the oil lamp is extinguished. Similarly, when experiencing a pleasurable feeling, one does so while being released from that pleasant feeling or pleasurable feeling. When experiencing a painful feeling, one does so while being released from that painful feeling. When experiencing a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, one does so while being released from that feeling. And when the time comes and the body breaks down, one knows I am experiencing the body breaking down. And one feels the end of life approaching, one knows I am experiencing the end of my life. And with the body breaking down and the ending of life fast approaching, one knows whatever I am experiencing now at the breakup of this body 
And despite all that is taking place with the ending of life itself, all that is felt and experienced. The mind nevertheless remains aloof, not being wrapped up nor delighting it. For all these are now cooled and subdued right here. By possessing this level of wisdom, the bhikkhu is declared as one endowed with the highest resolution of wisdom. For this is the highest noble wisdom, that is, knowledge of the complete destruction of suffering. His release is now firmly established in truth that is now unshakable. By the way, this is the Buddha's way of confirming the state of anagami that Venerable Pukkusati just attained. Because he saw with his mind that Venerable Pukkusati has now reached the third level of awakening and the fruition level of it, meaning anagami, non-returner. And then Lord Buddha continues, Know this, Bhikkhu, all that deviates from truth is deceptive. Therefore, is no truth at all. All that does not deviate from truth is the truth, which is Nibbana, that remains non-deceptive. Therefore, the Bhikkhu is declared as one endowed with the highest resolution of truth. For this Bhikkhu is the highest noble truth, that is Nibbana, which has a non-deceptive nature. In the past, owing to his ignorance, one went after various attachments, developing many unhealthy habits. But now he has abandoned them all, uprooted and cut them down like palm tree stumps, never to have them grow again. By the way, this example of a metaphor of a palm tree stump, if you ever cut a palm tree, it never grows back. And it's kind of sad. Um, when I was growing up, I was trying to water a palm tree that was cut and it didn't grow. Then I come across the Pali Canon and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So which is a wonderful metaphor because once it's cut, it will never grow back. Therefore, the bhikkhu is declared as one endowed with the highest resolution of giving up. For this bhikkhu is the highest noble act of giving up, renunciation basically. That is the giving up of all earlier attachments and unhealthy habits. In the past, owing to his ignorance, one was covetous, lustful and passionate. But now he has abandoned them all, uprooted and cut them down like palm tree stumps, never to have them grow again. In the past, owing to his ignorance, one became angry, living with ill will and hatred. But now he has abandoned them all, uprooted and cut them down like palm tree stumps, never to have them grow again. In the past, owing to his ignorance, one was foolish and deluded. But now he has abandoned them all, uprooted and cut them down like palm tree stumps, never to have them grow again. Therefore, the bhikkhu is declared as one endowed with the highest resolution of peace. For this bhikkhu is the supremely noble resolution of peace, that is, the pacification of lust, anger, and delusion. This is what was meant by the statement, one diligently protects truth by no longer neglecting wisdom. While developing a deeper understanding of giving up and training oneself in becoming more peaceful. And what was meant by the statement when confronted by them, one should not get flooded by these imaginings. 
And when no longer preoccupied by these notions thus, one is declared as the peaceful sage, bhikkhu. The notion I am is an imagining. I am this is an imagining. I will be is an imagining. I will not be is an imagining. I will possess a form is an imagining. And this is in reference to uh, being reborn in the form realms. I will be formless is an imagining. And that is in the Arupa Lokas uh, where there is no, um, no form uh, is an imagining. And by the way, the Pali word imagining is manyana, which we always do. When we have sanya, it doesn't usually stay as perception or concept or memory. We build on it, we play with it. And that's called imaginings, which soon enough goes into the area of sankaras, where we have huge mansions built out of these sanya. Um, so um, I will be able to perceive or I will be unable to perceive is also an imagining. I will be neither able to perceive nor will I be unable to perceive is also an imagining. Bhikkhu, imagining is itself a disease, a virus, a poisonous dart. But by overcoming all imaginings, by putting an end to them, and by no longer being preoccupied by these notions, one is declared as the peaceful sage. So get rid of sanya. Don't go falling for it. Bhikkhu, this peaceful sage is not born, does not age, does not die. He does not get agitated, and he no longer has any yearning. The reason for this, Bhikkhu, is that there is nothing found in the Bhikkhu that would lead him to be reborn. Not being born, how can he then age? Not aging, how can he then die? When there is no more death, how can he then become agitated? When no longer agitated, how can there be any yearnings left? Bhikkhu, this is what was meant with the statement. When confronted by them, one should not get flooded by these imaginings. And when no longer preoccupied by these notions, thus one is declared as the peaceful sage. Therefore, Bhikkhu, remember this as my short classification on the six elements. Short. <laughs> For us, it's, it might be very long. Um, some people have said, you know, why uh, Venerable Fukusati was only, and, and so he reached uh, the uh, stage of anagami, which is not arahanship. But one thing that we need to remember is um, that the Lord Buddha gave, when he gave, he gave it full. He didn't hold back ever. He gave the whole thing, the whole path that would take a person straight to arahantship. Now what the person does with that Dhamma is up to their capacity. And here's the image that was uh, presented um, in, in, uh, in commentaries. It's a lovely image. And it's, uh, they say, imagine a young, healthy king, a ruler, who is having lunch. He's tasting the most delicious, I guess, biryani. 
delicious aromatic rice all kinds of good stuff in there so he takes morsels of food that fit his hand for an adult so he eats them and the queen gives the uh the prince to the king to sit uh, to have him sit on his lap and the prince is now sitting on the lap of his father and the king is so happy that he gives another morsel of food to this time the prince the child whose, whose mouth by the way is a lot smaller than the king's but the king in his generosity he's he has his whole hand full and he's slowly putting portions of the food into the mouth of the child as much as the child could handle it. Similarly, anybody else other than Pukusati, whose merits and paramis might have been at the level of an arahant, ready to become an arahant, that is, would have become an arahant with this message, with this Datu Vibhanga Sutta. But he didn't. But he got pretty close, as we're going to see. It's not bad becoming an anagami at all. So please bear that in mind. Uh, then uh, at that point, because this was at dawn, at that point, the Buddha no longer kept his uh, six colored radiance incognito. And he appeared in his old glory and the whole workshop lit up and um, because already he had a Venerable Pukusati, he didn't need that, but with the re realization of Venerable Pukusati uh, that, oh, oh, now I know whose presence I'm in. Uh, at that point, to kind of complete that whole picture, Lord Buddha uh, appeared in his, um, in his full presence, shall we say, with his radiance of the six colored body uh, hues. Let's continue. Then the Venerable Pukusari realized, surely my teacher, the Sugata, the one well gone, the perfectly self-awakened one has come to me. And he quickly got up from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and bowed by placing his head at the feet of the Blessed One and declared, Bhante, pardon me. See, now he's not saying friend. He says, Bhante, pardon me for my foolishness, for I was deluded. And I committed an unwholesome act as I, without thinking properly, transgressed by addressing the Blessed One as friend. Bhante, please forgive me. And may the Blessed One accept my transgression as a transgression. As I will make amends in accordance with the Dhamma. And from now on and into the future, I shall exercise much restraint. And the Blessed One replied, It was indeed a transgression, Bhikkhu. Owing to foolishness and your delusion as you committed an unwholesome act, when without thinking properly, you transgressed by addressing me as friend. But as you now see and recognize your mistake and ask forgiveness accordingly by making amends in accordance with the Dhamma, I pardon you. For Bhikkhu, it is indeed progress and growth in the Blessed One's discipline 
when someone sees one's transgression and asks for pardon in order to exercise restraint from now and into the future. Then the Venerable Pukusati said, Bhante, I seek to receive the higher ordination from the Blessed One. He wanted to become full-on ordained. Bhikkhu, are your bowl and robes complete? Bhante, my bowl and robes are not complete. Bhikkhu, the Tathagatas do not give the higher ordination when the bowl and robes are incomplete. And here is interesting because you had other incidents, like in the case, many, many cases. One in particular is when Venerable uh, Sariputta, before he became, when he was Upatissa uh, and Kolita, uh, who later became Mahamogalana, when both of these individuals, close friends, were approaching Venerable, uh, uh, well, Lord Buddha, in the earlier days, Buddha recognized them as his chief disciples. They were going to be chief disciples of his. And he turned to the other bhikkhus and he says, behold, these are the chief disciples of mine that are approaching. And as they approached, they bowed down and Buddha did, without any question, he said, Come, bhikkhus, come. That was it. That was their full novice and high ordination immediately. And what uh, we hear is, what we see is uh, immediately uh, bowls appeared and the three sets of robes appeared in front of them. But we don't see that in Pukusati's case. In fact, Lord Buddha said, asks him, hey, where are your robes? Do you have alms bowl? Oh, so if you don't have it, then. So what's the discrepancy here? There's been many explanations, but the one that really uh, makes sense uh, to me uh, is the one that involves the uh, person in question, having that life be the very last of theirs, meaning to attain arahanship within that life. That was the case with Venerable Sariputta. That was the case with Venerable uh, uh, Mahagama Galana, etc. So, but that was not the case here, as we will soon find out. Then the Venerable Pukusari, delighting in the words of the Blessed One, got up from his seat and after paying homage to the Blessed One and while keeping him to his right, meaning he circumambulated, he turned around Lord Buddha three times came out of the potter's workshop and went searching for a bowl and a set of robes. It was now dawn. Now remember this person was a king and he was not just any king, he was King Bimbisara's friend king. So he could have easily gone to King Bimbisara's court and say, hey friend, buddy, uh, can I borrow? Like, can, can you give me a bowl? Or he could have gone to his ministers or his uh, businessmen where they would have their own place, let's say, uh, like a caravan sarai where they would go and rest. So he didn't want to use any of his prestige from leftover days of being king, you know, in kingship. Instead, he went to the charnel grounds, to the cremation grounds, to collect his robes from discarded robes, to find a bowl from there. And um, yeah, so um, and while he was looking for his bowl and robes, a wild and deranged cow came running at him and gored him with her horns. And thus 
killing Venerable Kukusati. This is a very similar event, uh, incident that happened also, if you remember, to Bahia after he became an Arahant. Another cow came and probably it was the same cow, uh, <laughs> but uh, the commentaries say that uh, they had done a, a very uh, atrocious thing in a very distant past, um, him, Bahia, and another person um, uh, who used to be friends. And now, um, I guess the karma was catching up to them. And this is what happens when a person really nears the end of their journey, spiritual journey. It kind of uh, like bottlenecks. Many of the heavy, heavy duty kammas, they start to uh, come to fruition as it were. And so um, um, as was the case here. Um, and killing Venerable Kukusati. So, and, and uh, so Venerable Pukusati, because the, the cow was lifting him up, she, he flew and he just landed on his face, but they say that his body was so beautiful, even lying down, it was almost like a golden statue laying face down in the charnel ground. And uh, uh, a touching moment is, uh, occurs when, um, so basically Lord Buddha is sending his radiance. So everybody's now congregating towards the Bhagavas, the potter's workshop. workshop. So the, the news goes all the way to King Bimbisara who rushes early in the morning to go and see his, uh, see his teacher, Lord Buddha. He doesn't have a clue about Pukusati meanwhile. He doesn't know what has happened to him. All he knows he sent the gift over of the Dhamma and that's it. And this is where Lord Buddha relays, uh, relates the question, uh, not the question, but the re reports to him, tells him about what had happened to Pukusati after he sent him the gift of Dhamma and how he had reached here. Meanwhile, you can imagine uh, King Bimbisara becoming very emotional and very happy at the same time that his friend was so moved that he took on the robes. And he left his kingdom, something that King Bimbisara could not do, by the way, despite the fact that he was a Sotapanna. And he, King Kusati, was not. So, uh, and Lord Buddha tells him that Pukusati has now reached the third stage. At this point, King Bimbisara is, you know, beside himself in, in happiness, in joy. And he, say, he asks, well, where is my friend, Lord? And the Buddha says, he has gone to get his uh, bowl and robes, um, searching for them. He doesn't say to him that he's dead uh, immediately. Uh, so, um, but then he, he, once he settles down and that's when the Buddha breaks the news to him that he has died to uh, King Bimbisara. And King Bimbisara is really, um, distraught, uh, but he sends his guards to look all around his, his city and they find the golden statue-like body of uh, King Pukusati on the ground. So uh, later many bhikkhus approached the Blessed One and after paying homage to him sat to one side and reported the matter by saying, meanwhile the Buddha has gone back to Savati. Bhante, the clansman Pukusati, to whom the Blessed One talked to Dhamma in brief, has died. What was his destination, blessed one? Where is he now reborn, Bhante? Bhikkhus, the clansman Pukusati, is wise. He realized the Dhamma, as he did not require me to explain much. 
The clansman Pukusati has destroyed the five lower fetters that bind one to the sensual world, and as a result has now been born spontaneously in the pure abodes where he will attain final Nibbana without ever returning from that world. This is what the Blessed One said, and all those bhikkhus listening were delighted in the words of the Blessed One. Sad, sad, sad. So, uh, by the way, um, King Pukusati, um, shortly after landing in the Aviha realm of the Suddhavasa dimension of, uh, uh, he became an Arahant. Um, so um, that's a good thing. So he, uh, and, and Suddhavas, and it was the lowest of the five um, worlds. And this is a, a series of five realms where only Anagamins are reborn into. No one can be reborn in them unless they are of that level where basically they have cut the five lower fetters. Um, and they will never fall back from that realm, as we saw Buddha saying. Um, so some people, at, they attain it at landing into these realms. Some people have to live uh, for some time in these realms. Um, and during the, those times they can attain. And some people, um, they will finish that time in that realm and move up to another realm. And during that transition, in, again, in the same Anagami realms, they can't fall back. So they can go higher. Uh, in those realms, in landing in those realms, they can attain it or in between, or even in between this life and the rebirth into any of these pure abodes. So not a bad deal at all. So uh, it's a, as you know, it, it was uh, a long sutta, but I tried my best in, uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, any questions or comments while I get some water? Please go ahead and speak. No thoughts, no questions. Bhante, just a quick, more of a translation question. In the version, the Bhikkhu Bodhi version I look at, he uses the word resolution when they're talking about, uh, sorry, foundation. You use the word resolution, the four yeah. of those. Yeah. Uh, and so neither of those words have a great translation in my mind so i know exactly what they are so to, just to say it a different way would it be similar to a basis of thinking is that what you mean by a resolution or a foundation how else would you describe those words so i know what it is is meant um i would like the basis of thinking itself however it it there is a, a strong similarity with uh, the um uh the mind part, the mind contact, which we, we were talking base of mind. Uh, so that is, uh, which was uh, in the beginning part of the exposition itself. So if I were to use that, uh, even in, in my thinking, let's say, it might be confusing. So I uh, would encourage you to find a, a perhaps a bridge 
term between resolution and, um, and foundation uh, because um, other individuals have used resolution. And that comes actually from, I use a lot uh, um, of, um, uh, to, for inspiration, uh, um, uh, the work or works of uh, Sister Upalavanna. She was a uh, German nun um, in the 19th century, late 19th century, she went to Sri Lanka. So um, there is a strong presence of her translation in all of the Western translations I've seen in English. Um, and um, so a lot of it is played out, including in the wisdom publications, um, many of these. And um, so she's the one that uses also resolution and checking the, um, the poly, I found it to resonate better with that re resolution. Now, resolution can also be, it's not a necessarily a resolve, uh, a state of uh, determination, which is still, it has this active energy force behind it, this impetus perhaps, but more approaching it as a station, a station where the person has reached Finally, after having gone through such an ordeal of going and dissecting through each of these elements and seeing oneself that, whoa, the mind has finally reached this state of aloofness beyond the domain, excuse me, of the elements. So now the mind has, in a sense, broken free because these are four. There's the, the part of the wisdom, there's the Nibbana or the truth, there's the giving up or renunciation. And finally, there is the peace or the pacification um, states. Now, having said that, I always encourage us to go beyond what words, despite, even the Pali words, the Pali words that we use so often, sometimes even the Pali is not helpful. In my translations, I always use several terms to kind of help me. Uh, that's why today, for example, you, you probably caught that where I said um, consciousness. And then within parentheses, I say, or sense awareness. Because it can easily turn into something very heady, cognitive, and a perception, a concept. And the sense awareness part comes from... Um, uh, my own uh, practice as a meditator, especially with uh, the influence of uh, Ajahn Man and Ajahn Mahabua, uh, for example, who present consciousness in that fashion, because uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why I love their, uh, I love them, uh, because they really brought the teaching back to life in a sense, in the form that it became more alive, practice-based. It was no longer pariyati, which is the teaching or the studying of the Dhamma, but it became patipada or patipatti, which is the practice part of the Dhamma. Now, when we take these terms and we put it under the litmus test of practice, suddenly it is up to the practitioner to play with these terms. Because let's let's face it, you know, in textual analysis, etc. Over the years, uh, as one does these things, um, 
we can see the influence that human beings have had. So I'm not of the mindset of blind belief of the Dhamma that we get, even in the Pali Canon, that it is purely exactly 100% the teachings of the Buddha. No. There's chunks and chunks of things that don't belong there. However, the majority of it is, and it's the closest thing to the actual words of the Buddha, as evidenced by the practice of it and its reflection that we see coming in pure reflection from the Vinaya portion, because we don't see the suttas only as the source of teachings, but also the Vinaya. And the Buddha always triangulated these three. And in the book of threes, I believe in the Anguttaranikaya, numerical discourses, the Buddha says how it's important, actually the, no, the reference in the book of four, uh, the Buddha says how one needs to go back and use these. The Dhamma, yes, even if a person says, yes, 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 I heard this straight from the mouth of the Buddha or from his enlightened Arya Savakas. Okay, he says, don't accept it, don't deny it either. Go and check it in the Vinaya. But most importantly, go and check it with your assiduous, dedicated practice. Test it there to see if this term actually does sense. And many of these terms that I've seen in the modern translations, many of them, not all of them, uh, don't make sense for me as a practitioner. And that's why I decided a few years ago to go ahead and uh, because it was keeping me away from delving into the suttas because I was intimidated from the suttas because I couldn't make sense of it. The word concentration, for example, I struggled with it for over 15 years. And that's a conservative number of years because concentrate, concentrate. How can I concentrate and attain wisdom, insight? How is that possible? There's, it's not, there's, it's impossible because I'm fixating, I'm fixating my mind to a single point at the exclusion of everything else. But when you look at the Satipatthana in a different way, you look at Pasambati, you look at tranquilizing the body, relaxing. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. And that was introduced uh, specifically, uh, mostly by, uh, by uh, Venerable Punraji, who passed away initially. Um, and that relaxed step suddenly opened up my world. And it was so quick because I suddenly fell into the first jhana. And I had been sitting for over 20 years, mind you, struggling. And I didn't know what this was because I thought this is impossible for me to experience the jhana because people had ta told me and taught me that no, 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 no. You have to go to a monastery in, you know, in the mountains and, and practice for 40 years, 40 years to experience the jhana. Of even the first one. So concentration was in itself, I'm just using that as an example, and it, 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 it's a definition. It was used, and it's still unfortunately being used as a definition for samadhi. And it's an antiquated term, and it should not be used at all because, yes, there's an element of concentration somewhere in the vast ocean that is samadhi but it's a small portion of the practice of samadhi. The collectedness of mind has a fuller meaning. Stability of mind, that's where insight and wisdom can take place. So uh, I hope I'm not going on a tangent from what uh, you were inquiring, 
uh, about, but that is how I would approach it. So the resolution versus foundation. A foundation for me means like uh, somewhere that I'm starting off from. You know, it's like the, the, the launching pad, launching site or springboard. From this, I can move up when this is not the case. Because these are states that we are, the person is reaching after having done their due diligence, working on um, these, uh, exposing these different layers of, of a person's life, meaning the elements, etc. How is how is this so far? Does this make well, it's it's perfect what you are saying that I need to uh, consider a whole range of different words because that's exactly the problem I'm having when I look at. Now more than one word, I'm still not getting the essence of I think what it is. But what you just said, then being the more the end goal that we're reaching after that that thinking. That's I haven't come up with a single word for that, but that's um, and I see resolution is a good word for that. So now I understand a lot better your use of the word resolution. It makes more sense to me. So thank you. Great. Oh, of course. I'm glad. I'm glad. And again, and another one would be like a station. You know, um, I, the thing comes to mind in Costa Rica. One time I, uh, I was there one, once and I did a zip line uh, thing. And um, we started from near the ground level at one point. And I'm like, wait a minute, this has, I, I heard this, like we're gonna go on the top of trees, you know, over the, over the canopy. The trees are here, like, well, where are we going? And then as we went, the terrain changed. Meanwhile, we were going up in a sense in different areas. There were trucks and things, uh, four wheelers for, uh, you know, that were um, co-oped or, you know, well, I forgot the name of it. And they would take us higher. And finally we reached the apex of the, the thing. And we started going from one station to the next, zip lining through the, the jungle. And then that was a station. That's, you know, um, I guess a resolution in this case, uh, a, a station, a way station. Uh, but I wouldn't say necessarily a way station because these four have to be there to bring about the peaceful sage that the Lord Buddha was talking about. Because they are part of, they're different facets of the same diamond. I cannot remove one of the facets and say there's the diamond because the giving up, the relinquishing part has to be there. I cannot hold on to things. I cannot hold on to fame, prestige, properties if I am truly practicing. Sooner or later, I have to give them up as a bhikkhu or as a practitioner. So things have to come off. You know, it's like the metamorphosis of a, butter, uh, of a butterfly, from a worm to a butterfly. It's giving up. Now, can the butterfly go back in being a, a, a worm in that life? No. So that would be a resolution, the state of butterfly-ness, I would say, versus it when it had not gone through the metamorphosis, if that makes sense. Wonderful question. Any thoughts, comments, questions? 
Anyone else? Thanks very much for the explanation, Bhante. Um, it appears to me that this is a very complete sutta in many sense. Um, that's, uh, it encompasses many aspects of the Dhamma, um, like this six great elements, the Salayatanas, um, the Panchakandas, and even the um, the Asupa aspects, for example. And it appears to me that um, when the Buddha explains the fire elements as um, basically um, the, the digestive um, fire that is uh, within our body, um, I find it actually quite um, beneficial to consider, to also include the inner fire elements as anything to do with passion, pride, um, restlessness, conceit, um, doba, dosa, moha. I mean, these are the fires that really um, occupy our um, mind that needs to be relinquished um, with relaxation. Um, so, I would like to hear your opinion on that. Yes, thank you for that. Um, um, exposing us to that, uh, from that point of view, looking at the elements and specific the, the, the fire, absolutely. Uh, the word that the Buddha used, uh, in English we use the term dispassion. And it's, it's viraga. Um, in this case, going beyond vi, uh, sometimes it's non-something, so non-passion or dispassion. Uh, it's up to you how you use it, but essentially it's the same thing. Where the passion, if you've ever seen a person get angry or a person, uh, miserliness, I was mentioning miserliness a few times today, uh, holding on to things, this is mine, I'm not going to let you, you know, use my house, my temple, my car, my this, or I'm not going to give my five minutes to listen to you. Um, what that is generating is this, even blood pressure is rising, I would say, and the body temperature is, is, is rising, and passion itself is a mentally heated, um, fiery experience. And even the temperature, body temperature rises when we are being passionate. Um, and, um, you know, before we get to the tunnel vision, that's what's happening because uh, it's affecting your adrenaline, it's affecting your executive uh, brain function. Um, you're going into the fight or flight mode in a sense. Um, so all these things do take place. And what does get to be definitely left out is Banya, wisdom. Hence, the Buddha's use of, uh, in this case, the word cooling down. What gets to be cooled down? Something that is warm, something that is hot. Try to microwave some food and uh, for a long time and then uh, pull it out and see how, whether you're going to be able to hold it with your fingers. Uh, why? 
and uh, living in life, living a life that you know as as people, um, we're exposed to different influences, and even that friction can create generate some heat. Oftentimes, I get the question, why, why do we sit? Why do we have to meditate? Well, because you are trying to cool down, <laughs> literally. And the Buddha also demonstrated this in the beginning part of the sutta, where he did not engage in a conversation. He allowed Pukusati to cool down, just like he did allow Bahia in the previous sutta we did to cool down as he asked the same question again and again, Bhante, please teach me the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, now is not the time, Bahia. Of course, it's always the time for Dhamma. What are you talking about? Of course. But it was not the right time for Bahia's mind because he was too hot. The mind, it's, it's, so it doesn't necessarily mean just Raga, Dosa, Moha or the three defilements, Loba, Dosa, Moha that generate passion. It could also be Overexhaustion because there is the state of deludedness. And this is where the defilements can really take over. Because when we just focus on the raga portion, well, what's going to happen with the dosa, which is the second, the hatred, the ill will, the anger, isn't that hot? But where do these two come from, loba or raga and dosa? They come from their mother, I call it always. Mother is what? Moha. The delusion. So sitting to meditate to cool down is to wipe the windows from the fogginess that has been created where we cannot see what's outside, what's inside. We cannot properly translate with a cool head what's happening to us and around us. So for the very um, simple reason, I mean, you can even use that to explain to people how, why we sit and meditate to create that space, that separation, like uh, Venerable Sariputta, or in this case, Lord Buddha was talking about the breaking the body into its different parts. Now, one good thing that you could do is uh, when there is a strong heat, a strong fiery attachment to, let's say, passions, etc. this uh, breakdown of the six elements, especially the, uh, the five of them, uh, minus the consciousness part, um, it's very helpful to use any of these, let's say the solid, the earth element, and send your mind to that area. Let's say your knees, let's say your jaw, your throat, your back, your scapula, your shoulder blades, your feet or your stomach. Maybe you've had too much to eat or nothing to eat. So you're very, very hungry. Send your awareness, send your mindfulness, your sati there and dwell there. Just explore without adding anything, just exploring the different nuances, the different aspects of that, in this case, stomach, let's say the organ or yeah. And then all of a sudden you start seeing the other elements there in it as well. The stomach also has some fluid. It has hydrochloric acid type, you know, like, you know, almost that, that uh, low pH level. It breaks bones, dissolves things. So it also generates heat. Hmm, interesting. We started with earth element though, but it also is vacuous. It, it has a space in it where the food gets dumped. 
Okay, okay, we're seeing that. So there's motion, which is the wind element. Okay. So within one organ that we started with one element, you are dissecting and seeing it as being a representative of all the other elements. And then you pull that stomach out and you put it in front of you and you're dissecting it, but you do it at your own comfort. Meanwhile, what is happening underneath is you are slowly giving up those facets I mentioned about the diamond, whether it's Nibbana, wisdom, Nibbana, the truth of Nibbana, being non-deceptive, basically, uh, the giving up, the renunciation, or the peace, they are taking place in the background. So you're passing the point of getting to the point of uh, passing the point of no return using any of these tools. And remember, any of these things, any of these uh, guides that the Buddha gave Pukusati could deliver a person to arahantship. So thank you for that question. And uh, I've been talking for, yes, some quite some time, but uh, again, anything for Dhamma, but again, we have to take care of the body apparently <laughs> while observing it <laughs> and the elements. So again, if you do have questions, uh, again, uh, my, my encouragement is that you again, review it, you play it or you read the suttas, however you wanna do it, go over them again and Take one piece, take it with you into your meditation if you want, or when in your walk, going outside walking, or any sensation that comes in to the body. Ooh, what was that feeling I'm having, whether physical or emotional? What is it? If I were to put a label of an element on it, which element would this be? And use sati there, but don't let it just stay with the sati level. Continuous sati opens doors for panya to take place. And let's stop it at the consciousness level or the sense awareness so that we don't end up in another womb again, ever. <laughs> so we'll stop here and um, I'll do the dedication of merit. This time I'll do it in Pali. Akasatha Chabumata Deva Nagamahitika Punyantang Anumoditva Chirangrakanjuloka Sasanam Akasatha Chabumata Deva Nagamahitika Punyantang Anumoditva Chirangrakanjudesanam Akasatha Chabumata Deva Nagamahitika Punyantang anumoditva chinangra kantunam param. Etta bata chamehi sambadang punya sampadang. Sabbe deva anumodantu sabba sampati sedia. Etta bata chamehi sambadang punya sampadang. Sabbe buta anumodantu sabba sampati sedia. Etta bata cham hehi sambadang punya sampadang Sabbe satta anumodantu sabba sampati sedia Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu Be well. May the triple gem bless you and protect you. One who lives with the Dhamma is protected by the Dhamma. Let's not forget that. So uh, may you all be well.
and I'll see you next week. Take care.